Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. This is a special report as we're going to go ahead and talk tonight about the newest Netflix release from Mike Flanagan, The Fall of the House of Usher. Uh, you can go back to previous podcasts to listen to us talk about his previous series. It's kind of become like a, almost every other year tradition tradition at this point with us. Um, this is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. Oh, this is Frank Pelican. Um, so Frank, uh, this is the fourth series of his that we've, um, reviewed. Uh, we kind of like just briefly talked about Midnight Club. Um, uh, but we have covered now, uh, Haunting a Hill House, Haunting a Bly Manor, Midnight Mass, and now this. So how do you feel about this overall? And, um, kind of roughly where, where you put it, you think? Um, I feel really good about it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, there are less things. Well, I wouldn't say I've ever been disappointed with any of his stuff, but I think that this is the one where I felt the most completed, like complete after watching it, where I don't know that I really feel like going back and immediately watching it again. Whereas like with Bly Manor and Hill House, I watched them again pretty soon after they aired um right yeah i can see that i still have never watched um midnight midnight mass again so mm. maybe that's the best one to me mm. <clears throat> um actually i think the bly manor is my favorite yeah um, you've always made that argument yeah i think it's probably bly manor i don't know it's so hard to rank yeah them. it is i mean they're entirely different things if I ask you this question with this the, with this series, uh, Fall of the House of Usher, uh, do you see this as, uh, as the some degree, like, part of almost, like, the haunting series? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. I definitely think so. Yeah. I think there's a reason why they choose the House of Usher, or why he chose the House of Usher as the framing device for the stories, just so it fits in with the, you know, Blind Manor or Hill House right. thing. Yeah. I was actually, I was wondering today, like... What else do you have? Because, I mean, I guess he could do a... There's a Stephen King, um, Peter Straub novel called Black House. Yeah. Um, which is set in the... It's like a sequel to The Talisman from the early 80s. Yep. I was I wondering if maybe it. since he's already adapted um, King, if King would let him do that, and that could be like a decent series too. I mean, I have a feeling King would let him do anything. I wouldn't get yourself too excited. This was the this finalizes contract with Netflix. Um, so unless something is like uh, redone here, like uh, which doesn't seem like it, it seems like he's kind of like put himself in a Amazon category, maybe. Um, at least that's who he's working with now to try to get the Dark Tower off the ground. We mm. might not see anything. Um, yeah, that's like in this way from him, except for movies, maybe for a bit, but. I mean, I'm okay with that too. I think that this maybe is, um, like a good fitting like bow on the sure. the series. You can watch all the Netflix stuff and really kind of, um, the themes that run through them, like a lot of the stuff that he's sort of really into putting in every one of his series and seeing the actors kind of all come together on in an ensemble piece. It's it's interesting to me because I was thinking about american horror story a lot when i was watching the yep. series um because it really felt american horror story-esque to me in the sense of like even though like a lot of his episodes are very much just like vignettes centered around a character this was much more it almost felt like a um like an amicus or uh um sort of like the VHS anthologies where there's like a common theme running through everything, but you kind of get like the different mm -hmm. horrific scenarios or whatever. Sure. Um, I think it also had a much, uh, wry or very black sense of humor that kind of in like, ha um, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Uh, that what's his name puts in those early seasons, oh, at least of American horror story. Ryan, um, shit, Ryan, something I can't remember his last name. But yeah, yeah, I, that's that's true. I think that's right. Um, it, which is which is a little odd for Ryan Murphy. Um, yeah, it, which is a little um odd for Flanagan. Flanagan doesn't necessarily insert like uh, an incredible amount of humor, um, like in his writing. But it felt like sure. these characters were like to be kind of looked at negatively, and it allowed for that maybe black humor um to creep into it. 
I think that that also has to do with the fact that Poe always had kind of a sardonic sense of humor, mm-hmm. like in all of his stuff too. So sure, it kind of fits. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, definitely not even kind of it definitely fits. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, like that theme. So sure. So yeah. So I I was really satisfied with it. Um, it's probably in my top five most anticipated like media things of the year. Um, and I was not disappointed. Right. Um, I would definitely something I'll watch again just because um not because like in his previous shows like Bly Manor and uh, Hill House especially there's always things that you can see that are clues as to what's going to happen um mm-hmm. and I think because of the familiarity with Poe I know that you and I both have and I think that probably like most you know literate or even like semi-literate people have like a pretty strong you know sense of like Poe's stories sure i don't think there's as much surprise in this as in previous flanagan netflix things but i actually think that makes it more interesting because it gives you the chance to kind of so what is the adaptation piece here and some of the things are really obvious mm-hmm. um some of them and one thing which we'll talk about when we talk about the episodes if that's how you want to do it um that i feel like the episode itself the name doesn't even really relate to anything in the episode i think it's more about like an overall like overarching idea in the whole series that kind of like comes comes to a head in the last episode so but yeah i don't know i really enjoyed it yeah um like before we get into because i think once we get into talking about like the episodes themselves it'll get into a bit more um maybe like analysis and stuff like that and like you know um but i uh, to continue the review piece um the the people that the, the the cast that he's assembled to work on these shows over the course of like the last like six years um he's obviously i think pe- taking people that he um likes that are safe actors sure uh, to work with and people that are versatile uh and i i can't ha- i don't have the words to say how good i think like these people are in this oh yeah in in all of his stuff i mean like um there's not a single person who like disappoints necessarily like mary mcdonough i think is the only um person he i don't remember him working with before playing um uh madeline um but i mean uh carla gugino who i think i'm pronouncing her name right i always get it wrong but um and then uh bruce greenwood he's worked with we've talked about um gerald's game before on the podcast like he worked with him there like zach guilford he worked with on midnight mass and is now a part of his troop it seems henry thomas who's in everything his wife uh kate siegel Rahul coley like um who was in bly manor and tania miller in bly manor uh, Michael Truco, the Battlestar fame, like he was in Midnight Mass and he's been yeah. using him. Um, and you know, it just kind of in Carl Lumbly, who played, um, oh, what's his name from The Shining in the um, Doctor Sleep movie? Um, yeah, he was Scott um, Crothers' character, yeah. yeah. Um, Mark Hamill, who's new, oh, sorry, Mark Hamill's a new addition. Um, he's never worked with Mark Hamill before, I don't think. So, I'm, I'm actually kind of sad that you brought that up because that was one of the funniest things about watching the show. <laughs> I think I told you about it last night. Yeah. Um, yeah. That I didn't realize I was looking at Mark Hamill until like maybe the fifth episode of the season. And because to his credit, and I think this is something that I really appreciate about this series more than all of his other ones. This just this aspect of it. Um, No title cards, no opening credits, no long drawn out like um theme song driven you know Mm -hmm. um whatever like intro like it just is into the show goes through the show and then the show ends and you get the fall of the house usher title card at the very end of the show and then it starts to do the cast but like with every other netflix thing you can skip like you know immediately to the next episode so i hadn't looked at a cast list for this and aside from like knowing just from seeing the um I don't even know if I saw a trailer for this, maybe. I don't mm. know. But just like knowing his, you know, his repeat people, like what you just said, um, I was super surprised. And so I was sitting there and I was looking, I was like, holy shit, I think that's Mark Hamill. 
And that's the first time that I actually looked up the cast and like confirmed that it was. Um, and my son didn't realize it was Mark Hamill until the uh, the last episode when I said, like, <laughs> you know who this dude is we're watching right. here? Yeah. Um, that's I I think and I think there's some amazing performances yeah. in the show. Um yeah. I would say that probably Bruce Bruce Greenwood is maybe the best performance. Um, and Mary McDonald, but I think that they're all so good. Yeah, they are. But um Mark Mark Hamill is really like the I think kind of like the hidden gem. Like not that you can say that a Mark Hamill yeah. performance is like yeah. a hidden gem or underrated or breakout or whatever, but it's it's really was like super surprising and completely different, I think, than anything else I've ever seen him do. So I thought that was uh, agreed. And and one of the, to me, one of the more affecting scenes um in the entire series, like with Hamill. Um You talking about in the last episode? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, then... yeah really fantastic. And um, I, I probably shouldn't ignore like the the young actors that he's added to his troupe from Midnight Club, um, Ruth Codd playing Juno and um, Kylie Kern playing Lenore. And um, oh, I can't find the name here. The the actor who played Prospero was also a Midnight Club. Yeah. Um, so he's continuously adding like, you know, younger people to um, his cast list. Um, oh, and Robert Longstreet in the first episode that we'll get to um, shortly um, playing Longfellow. Um like that guy uh longstreet played the husband uh that is the caretaker in hill house and um has been in like bit roles in all of his stuff and yeah. he's always like great voice great gravitas can do like villains can do like you know the everyman and is always like great in these really small roles um all the time i love that guy um <clears throat> so yeah um i Act, stellar acting um people that know how to deliver i think his dialogue and stuff like that really well and i uh, great collaborators um uh for for his style um so the first episode um a midnight dreary referencing the raven um <clears throat> there starts with uh the story kind of like setting up as a framework of usher talking to uh august dupan um and starting like the overall like grand story of this entire series as he's giving his confession to dupan after uh decades of uh kind of uh selling covering up crimes to sell um his pharmaceutical drugs yeah um and then also tells the backstory of madeline and roderick usher um growing up with their mother who is a secretary and um for uh the Fortunata Chemicals Magnet, who uh, is secretly their father. Um, yep. So, uh, mother's name... Eliza? Eliza, right. Yes, I keep forgetting that. Um, uh, we both know, because we've talked about it so much, like a reference to uh, the poem Lija. Um, uh, well, the short story, right? And then there's the poem. Oh, what's the poem that's in that? I can't remember. Um, it's with the worms. Um, is conquering worm, conqueror worm. Yep, conqueror worm. That's it. Um, take me back 15 years now. Um, probably last time I read that, but so yeah. So, what did you think, um, largely of this episode and how that story of Elijah is like kind of like adapted or not adapted or inserted or like kind of borrowed from? Like, what did you think of um, this one? I thought it was a really interesting set up for the series because it's a lot different than what you usually get um in regards to usually because everything's a set piece around a house or the island in the term um terms of midnight mass it felt more staged i guess than anything else he had previously done in mm -hmm. terms of um just the look of the setting and the feel of um you know, Dupan um, and Usher, like, facing off against each other. Um, it actually reminded me stylistically of, like, series of unfortunate events in the way it was filmed, both hmm. in the, um, uh, like, the use of color or lack thereof. Mm -hmm. um, he paints, like, the 70s as this very kind of, like, gray, dismal era, which is interesting, mm -hmm. I think. 
um because yeah. usually when you see the 70s it's like really bright but um right also maybe a little, little bit of like and this is a really uh stretch of a comparison but the way that donnie brasco was filmed um it kind of reminded me sure. of that like i can the, see that yep almost like sepia tone of the yeah the thing um i thought it was a good setup yeah. I thought the premature burial connection, I mean, then, you know, Elijah, I know, is about her coming from the grave, but I also, um, there's a lot of, like, small things that are references, I think, or homages, not even, like, references to, to Poe, um, but her coming from the grave and strangling, uh, Fortunato, um, I love the use of the Poe, um, like, names, you know, like using like Dupin and Fortunato and Usher and um, all that stuff like early on, I, I think set a really good tone for kind of where the series goes. Um, and it really hooked me. Uh, not as much as the second episode. Like I think the mm. second episode is where I was really like sucked into wanting to watch the rest of it immediately. Okay. So um, I, what about the second episode? hooked you i loved the the use of each episode to not just be like a adaptation of a different poe tale mm -hmm. but kind of like making you figure out how does this relate to the original poe story based on the title of the episode so mm -hmm. mask of red death is the second episode and um focuses on um prospero perry uh usher who is um the youngest son of roderick usher um this is where like you really find out you find out in the first episode the whole idea that there's some kind of like informant in the um in the family and sets up the pitting the siblings kind of against each other to find out who this informant is um but this is where like you really get to dig deep into um sort of like the dark like gruesome reality of all the ushers yeah um and i think that perry like for being on the surface maybe the most grotesque in terms of like his drug abuse and his wanton like sexual pro proclivities and his desire to kind of be this almost like um uh haunting of hell house the lead um Velasco or whatever and they're like this guy who's this secret like magnet for the right. rich that like sets up these debauched um encounters and that's what he's trying to do um in the ruins of a like factory that the Fortunato company like secretly owns mm -hmm. um but also the fact that this is a kid who nobody respects and nobody cares about and even though he's supposed to be learning the family business, like they've never impressed upon him that there's any real, like whatever end game for him to do that. So he's trying to build a, a name for himself on these things. Um, mm -hmm. I love the use of um, Carlo Gugino as the Verna character um, who this mysterious, like supernatural character that you learn over the course of this, the series is actually like connected to all the members of the family in a lot more like I don't know, nefarious or whatever ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the set piece of the toxic rain, like burning the skin off of everybody in the building, I think is amazing and one of the most shocking and gruesome things I've seen in a television show ever. Yes. Yeah. Um, and also incredibly brilliant in so let me like just foreshadow my one complaint about the series is i think it's way too on the nose sometimes about modern problems maybe like it's tied too much to the idea of and we might as well just talk about this like fortunato makes their fortune by selling um lenapro Len right is that what it's called uh let's see uh ligadone ligadone which is uh oh that might also be a legit anyway yes it is um super addictive opioid that like basically um 
causes like hardcore addiction to anyone that takes it for even a small period of time and is really difficult to get off of. Um, so there's the war on drugs, the opioid crisis, and they reference that repeatedly throughout the show. There's also this kind of crass, um, disregard for the environment by corporations. That's a big portion of the show. And that's the set piece here. So even though I think it's a really cool set piece and a nice analogy to like, almost like the plague Mm -hmm. in terms of like, this is our modern plague is our, you know, destruction of the environment. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes that stuff felt just a little too on the nose for me, Mm. a little too like self rep or like exactly referential to something happening now. Yeah. There's actually, I wish I could remember what it was. There was a line in maybe episode seven or eight where I legitimately like groaned out loud because it was so, so much a direct like attack on a certain segment of our population and not a segment that I agree with, but still like, like, come on, you know, like you don't always need to make everything. Was it that I could shoot somebody? I can't remember what it was. Fifth Avenue line. No, no, no. I don't think that was it. I, I honestly can't even remember what it was. It was something that was a direct attack on Republicans or something like that. I don't know. I I, I can't remember. Right. Um. But I don't know, it's just it's one of those things where sometimes I feel like okay, like do we really need to like have everything have some kind of like direct political like I don't know. So I'm getting yeah. Off it it didn't really bother me, and I'll just say this it, only in the sense that it's like you end up getting like kind of like a socialist argument um at one point in that episode from Verna, and then a capitalist argument, even if it was like you know still socially progressive. Um, it was still like coming from a capitalist uh, feminist standpoint. Um, and so I think it was still as kind of uh the the rationales were still there that at least hit a moderate fiscal Republican standpoint, maybe not an extreme standpoint. And it did belittle a couple of lines. Yes, I agree. Um, so the other thing that the episode does that I actually, you don't realize is as brilliant as it is until like later in the show is it sets up a dynamic between um, what's his name? Uh, Elliot's character. Um Tammy and oh, Froderick, Frederick. Oh, yeah, um, Froderick. Yeah, right. Yeah, the Henry Thomas, yes, um, uh-huh. um, actor, his character, Frederick Usher. Yeah, um, sets up this idea of him as this family man with this wife, and mm-hmm. his wife is invited like surreptitiously to this orgy by um, Perry Usher, and she doesn't seem like she's going to go at first, but then she ends up going. Um, and lying to her um, husband and daughter about like where she's going and why. So it's pretty interesting because there's actually, I think, an effort to build a lot of sympathy for Frederick like throughout maybe the first like five episodes of the show. Um, or at least like paint him as kind of maybe the most salvageable of all like the six Usher children. Sure. In the sense that he seems like a good father, he seems like a caring husband. Right. He kind of seems like a guy that just wants his his own father's affection mm-hmm. and doesn't know how to get it because his dad is kind of a tyrant. Um, and I think that it's one of the most brilliant setups. Yeah. To just twist that knife when you finally get the Frederick episode. Yes. Um, because that's one of the most like anyway, we'll get there. Yeah. So, but building the um, whatever her name is, Morella or whatever um more yeah morella um building that and the little bit of lenore that you get in that episode i think is really smart Um, agreed yep um so that was the episode so mask of red death because we watched one and two like back to back on um hmm friday night i guess we watched them the -hmm. first two and then we just watched everything else yesterday um really like grabbed me and i was we were talking about it um prior to you and i doing friday's podcast frankie and i mm-hmm. uh, um just about how like amazing like that show was and how excited we were to watch the rest so yeah um the 
third episode is murder in the room warg and maybe this will be like my criticism i think this is the weakest episode of all of them um probably mm. um i feel that it's like does a lot to set up a lot of the story elements for the rest of the episodes but ultimately um is is the one where it's just like if i had to pick like the one that like i was least into as i was watching it felt more like a episode of secession than it did um or something like that than it did um sure than it did like this show but it was doing it packs a lot this episode in for continuing storylines and to set up future episodes and um has some really great scenes in it uh with i think uh this is the episode that focuses on Katie Siegel's uh, character, Camille, um, more than anything. But it's some really great scenes with her and uh, uh, what Leopold um, and Julius. Is that right? Was that his boyfriend's name? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, some really great stuff with them, like at times. And um, also introduces Tamerlane and her husband, um, Bill T, <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. which is... Uh, a funny reference to uh William William Wilson I think um and um yeah but um so I I thought this was probably the weakest out of all of them but it didn't mean that was bad um so that's not like my criticism probably of this series but um what did you think about this when you saw it in terms of the Poe adaptation part of it and stuff um I think it's funny that they found a way to get like orangutans and chimpanzees into the show, considering that like, right, Poe was like super obsessed with the idea of orangutans and chimpanzees. Uh huh. Um, I mean, it's not anywhere near like any kind of adaptation of Murders in the Room Org. Um, that was one of the first times where I kind of just rolled my eyes isn't the right word, but I was just like. Pfft. When I saw how they incorporated like Rue Morgan to the whole um, mm-hmm. narrative of the show, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I had like a least favorite episode. This one and the next one are the two that I felt did the least to compel me to watch it. Like it was much mm. more. I think. I think the second episode and the fifth episode were the two that really like grabbed me the most. And then six, seven, eight, I thought were all really good, but, um, well, let's just, like, them, let's let them four in real quick. You know, since yeah, like, then they're really that, like connected. Yeah. Um, um because it start the, 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 the plot of four starts in three, um, largely where you're first introduced to leo and jules yeah but it's like pluto is that what it is oh pluto the cat the yeah. cat um you're first introduced to the fact that um julius has a cat pluto that um uh that uh leopold isn't uh or napoleon isn't um uh no. is that right napoleon? it's leo as leo okay leo leopold okay leopold that's yeah maybe that's oh no no it is napoleon you're right yeah okay leo is the yeah 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 so um you get introduced to this cat Pluto and that he doesn't really like care for that much. And that leads into the fourth episode the black cat. And this is more about Napoleon's story. Um, and, uh, he's a kind of like this, like what he, he gives a bunch of his money to video game companies to make video games. He sits around playing video games all the day, all day. And yeah, um, he's like a developer and, um, yeah, he's, <laughs> What's like a bi- bisexual like, an, like drug abuser? Um, yes, a heavy drug abuser. Yes, he's he's an influencer. That's his um, kind of yeah, right, yeah, right. With his um hammer from um Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. Oh. So, I think maybe the most engaging, in terms of like being an actual human being, of all the Usher children. Yeah. Um, definitely the one that has the least awfulness to him. Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, he's really just kind of a, like, he's not, like, a great person, but his biggest, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, like, the worst thing about him is that he takes drugs. He's um, a cheater as well. Maybe, it cheats a little bit, but I think <laughs> that that's kind of, but I think that that's sort of something that's understood between him and his, and Jules, you know. I know that he 
hides it from him. But there is that line where Jules there says, is. But... I understood your excesses and that that was part of the deal mm-hmm. when we got together. And so right. I kind of took that as meaning that Jules understands like all the things that are sort of happening, even if he doesn't want to really know about them. Um, but definitely the guy that's like the only person that's really affected by the death of his siblings in any way other than like pure self-preservation and greed sure where he truly grieves um the loss of um the katie siegel character mm-hmm. um camille uh after her death um i thought that this was the most on the nose adaptation well there's one more that's like maybe the best adaptation and also one of the better episodes, like maybe one of the best episodes, but mm-hmm. this was one of the most on the nose adaptations in terms of being about the black cat. Right. Um, the idea of the cat being in the walls and, um, mm-hmm. him like being driven crazy by it. Um, I don't know. It was fine. Like I, yeah. I thought that this one and the, the third episode were fine. And I think that, I think in any Flanagan, series and i think this is true for um fly manor and hill house uh, not so much midnight mass because i feel like midnight mass is a little more compact it's pretty tight yeah but there's always a couple episodes where he's giving you things you need to know in the future right and you just kind of have to like deal with it because it's gonna matter later um because this is early when they start really doing the stuff with um young roderick usher and is this the episode where they introduce the idea of the New Year's Eve? Is that is that two or three? Um, they actually introduce it in one scene, like or in the first episode, and um, then you fi- meet Rufus Griswold, the current like the eighties nineteen eighties CEO in episode yeah. two, and then they do more with New Year's, I believe, in episode three. And then you get a little bit more with um, Griswold, I think, in four again. So it's this is kind of this going is one where he four is one where he humiliates them both in his office, right? Yes, I believe. Where so. he kind yeah. of like completely shits on um, Roderick and then and, tries to sexually harass uh, yes. Madeline. Yes. Um, so I like that stuff a lot too. Yeah, the Fortunata um, stuff from the eighties is good. Yeah. It was weird because I also I'm so attuned to the idea that characters will always come back so the idea that i was really surprised that when he killed the usher children they stayed dead Mm -hmm. um outside of like roderick having kind of like flash whatever like flashes of them or visions of them as he's being sort of like haunted by their ghosts yes um one of one one of my friends today she just started watching it um well, you know, or Candace. I mean, but uh, she just started today and is obsessed with Katie Siegel and was like, but she'll be back, right? Because it's like, that's what happens. And it's like, sorry. <laughs> like, uh, I'm like, no. <laughs> like, she's not going to be back because it's like, and this is a series where it's like, once they're dead, they're dead. Like, yeah, you know, which is I pretty mean, crazy. Yeah. Aside from you seeing them in glimpses and stuff. Sure, um, which I sure. also think the returning motif to the church where Roderick is burying his children, I think is pretty brilliant. And- mm-hmm. You do see him in brief flashes there. Sure, sure. Um, so yeah, I like the black hat overall. Like you said, it's pretty like on the nose. Like that that was one that um after three kind of pulled me pulled me back a little bit more into it. And then I'm assuming you really like five a lot, is my guess, the Telltale Heart. Yeah, I think the five yeah. is um some of the best performances and maybe the best adaptation. Um again. It's really good, yeah. I know that, like, Flanagan is very socially conscious, and, like, this is his thing, is kind of putting those social issues in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and overreach of the medical industry, um, you know, the idea, the whole, her being her father's child in terms of, like, using the NDAs and mm-hmm. the, um, whatever they call them, CF- CFCs or whatever, yeah, forms, like, the care forms to sort of trick people um i think it's a like really cool callback that eventually comes to like bite them all in the ass but right um i really enjoy the actress that plays victorine usher um Mm -hmm. i love her in bly manor i think she's pretty fantastic here yes um 
there's something about her where she can flip between being unhinged and almost like broken to fully engaged mm-hmm. and it doesn't come off as like weird or stagey so i really enjoy watching her act and agree um yeah i think this is probably next to maybe next to maybe the overall um arc of the show in terms of if you look at it in context of the fall of the house of usher short short story mm-hmm. um i think the telltale heart is the one that's the closest to um both in spirit and in practice like of the telltale yeah. heart story so i think it's the most horrifying to me it's the most horrifying imagery in the entire show i think largely like for, when the, sh- for the horror part like when you actually see the ending of that episode yeah yeah um really well done like you're right yeah she like nails that episode um, <clears throat> um to me it's to, to, to me it's there's there's two things that i think that are more skin crawling to me but yeah that's pretty bad yeah um and one thing that's really subtle in the two up ep- two episodes hence um that also gets me really good but yeah another one of brandy nice friends is watching the show as well and i was texting her about it last night and she had not gotten to this episode yet and she was like not somebody that watches a lot of like graphic horror at all and was already like kind of horrified by the imagery just through the first three episodes so it's like um uh yeah this is a pretty like gruesome one um in five so um six and seven uh we'll probably talk I don't know. They're both worth talking about. But um, Goldbug is sixth. Pin and Pendulum is seven. Before you get to the final episode, what did you think about these two? Um, Goldbug was weird to me because I didn't know how... Goldbug is not a story that I'm super familiar with. I've only read it maybe a couple times. But I like have like enough recollection of it where I didn't know like how they're going to bring around the idea of the Tamerlane character um into that but i thought it was a great episode i thought that watching her like Mm -hmm. have basically this psychotic break in the middle of like her biggest moment was um a pretty amazing performance um i came to think that maybe then we talked about this offline that maybe the gold bug reference is more to madeline than it is to tamerlin Mm. tammy or whatever um, because madeline is the one that's kind of obsessed with uncovering the secrets of um like the language of programming basically so that she can create right um sort of a a simulacrum of like a human and focusing on her granddaughter um Mm -hmm. who's again like i said that it was you know leo but i mean lenore is by far like the character that's the most sympathetic and oh sure yeah 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 um but really interesting um i was trying to think like what poe story has oh so there's another thing i forgot to mention um because it, it ends so early and i had almost for, forgotten about it even though frankie and i talked about it mm-hmm. so one of camille's assistant's names is toby yes and yes she constantly damn refers it. to him as damn it toby or toby right. damn it yeah which is a direct reference to uh, something that we've talked about, which is, um, shit, what is that anthology called? Spirits of the Dead. Spirits of uh, the Dead, yeah. Which is a anthology of stories based on Poe's work, mm-hmm. where Federico Fellini did a segment called Toby Dammit. So I was actually kept waiting for that, that poor kid to get like decapitated, because that's what right. I was yeah. Um was going to happen but yeah. it never happened cuz that's from um never never about the devil your head i think right yeah. yeah yep um um so i was trying to think what what post story involves a doppelganger like which one is that that there's William the... William Wilson yeah yeah which is i think more or less what is happening in Tamerlan's storyline is the William Wilson thing um, it is she... i mean just quickly, the reason I laughed earlier when I brought up William Wilson and I was started thinking about Tamerlane is that even maybe this is going too far, even in their sexual proclivities, sure, no, um, no, there's a do- there's a doppelganger aspect to 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 right. that of her not 
of her liking to watch her husband have sex with somebody else. Like, I mean, yeah, the only way she yeah. can get off is by seeing herself, right? Being like detached from the act as opposed mm-hmm. to like invested in it. Um, so yeah, I think you're right. This is like it's much more about William Wilson, kind of like, yeah. like the doppelganger thing. That's a good call. Um, so yeah, so him. I really enjoyed this episode. Um, yeah, it's funny because the children are all taken in. Um, reverse order of their birth so youngest to um, oldest and Tamerlan being the second like oldest um, usher child um, she's the one that falls second to last before uh, Frederick in um, episode seven but yeah and I did forget to mention her name quickly Samantha Sloan um, that plays um, Tamerlan uh she was in Midnight Mass um, as oh, yeah. like the horrifying Bev um, character that is like the disciple acolyte of like you know the you know whatever vampire demon whatever in that show yeah. and then um, she's also in the Midnight Club as well playing someone who is um, ends up being awful um, so she she has she has a knack um, for playing these type of characters that are kind of like you know uncomfortable in some way yeah and does really good with them. Her death really bothered me just because of the idea of glass going into your body is sure. incredibly like disturbing to me. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you a question because maybe I missed this. Um, it actually doesn't happen until the eighth episode, but I'm thinking about it now. So you're consistently getting flashback to Roderick, like engaging with his children after they're dead, mm-hmm. um, either in, um, the house of usher so to speak like in the um framing device segments or um in the flashbacks to the past like two weeks i'm gonna... <laughs> oh sorry yeah that's been happening a lot popping my eyeballs out um the why his wife right so Annabelle Lee, like the in yeah, the seventies. Annabelle Lee. Okay. Yeah. So you eventually get this like set piece of um him ruining his relationship with his first wife who bore him Frederick and um Tamerlan. And they show her at the end of the series where he's talking to her in the church, and there's a hole in the back of her head, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think she killed herself after he stole her children? away from her or do you think he had her killed um that's tough i mean from the conversation that they have kind of in that last episode i i would think that she killed herself um not that he had her killed because it seems like that he was able to ply the children away with money right um and giving them everything so i don't think it was so much that like i don't think there was any reason based on the conversation to have her killed i took it that she ended up doing something to kill herself but i don't know if you can know that for sure i was wondering because annabelle only... annabelle lee throws herself into the sea right like, right yeah she also like apparently has disappeared where no one's been able to find her so I was wondering if she killed herself and then he covered it up and they never mm. really addressed it. So, yeah. um, or she killed herself and her body's never found. And it's like maybe his, like almost like imagination or something like that of like what could have happened to her, what she did to herself. I don't know. Um, I mean, I don't know if it's because it, they always, they, the, the thing about that is they frame it with the dementia. So mm-hmm. you're never sure if what he's seeing is guilt, but he knows those things. So it's got to be. Like he has very specific knowledge of what happened to them when they were dying, which I think is provided by his interactions with the um, Verna character, mm-hmm. the Carla um, Wigino character. Um. So yeah. Anyway, let's go yeah. on to move on to episode seven. Um. Oh yeah. Right. So the pin and pendulum. Like uh, you you referenced this earlier. Like um about establishing uh Frederick is um the um like family man um and seemingly maybe one of the more sympathetic children um out of all of them and then we get sure. this episode with frederick um uh so do you want to continue that thought um from earlier yeah so and they kind of outline it in the previous two episodes to this one but mm-hmm. this episode you find out that um the frederick frederick usher is 
a sadist and a bully, and that's the only thing really that he took from his father is that having power gives him the right to do whatever he wants, um, and that includes um, torturing his wife. So early on, when they're first introducing um, in the tell before the Telltale Heart, where they're introducing um, Victorina's um, monkey experiments to try and create this artificial heart. Oh, we didn't even talk about that. that that's like the <laughs> right there. Yeah, sure. Is that the artificial heart keeps the heart beating. Right. And that's what she's hearing. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not pumping any blood anymore because the body's dead because she crushed in her, her caved in her skull. Mm -hmm. Um. So Frederick is using this um, form of nightshade that the company has developed as a paralytic where you are paralyzed but aware of everything that's happening to you and he's basically doing it to make her feel all the pain of her because so morella his wife who is at the orgy is the only survivor of the orgy um and he brings her home and uses that to torture her um and eventually resorts to he develops a coke habit from this cocaine that he got from leo um, which also is like a nice illustration of his weakness in the sense of like everyone else is doing like bumps of coke regularly and Frederick right. can't handle right. Like he immediately gets addicted and like goes insane. Mm -hmm. Um, but pulling out her teeth with a uh, pair of pliers, and this is one of the times where Flanagan does something that I really enjoy about his work, which is where he shows you something without showing it to you. Um, and then later in the series shows you exactly what you would have been seeing with like the knowledge. Mm -hmm. So it actually makes the performance in the set piece really cool, which is the idea of Verna being so disgusted by how he's treating his wife that um, she makes him put the nightshade in his cocaine bag instead, um, which is what ultimately leads to his death. But another one that's not like a great adaptation, but is a really cool inspired by. Yeah. Um with yes. that pendulum like swinging like so and his, satisfying too yeah kind it of. really is like, his <laughs> only task is to blow up the building where prospero right held his orgy and he's not done it for the entire series and so now um roderick tells him like this is your only job you have to do it if i'm going to trust you and when he goes to do it um he does a bump of cocaine like as he walks in but it's actually the nightshade so he becomes paralyzed and falls down and that's when um, Verna tricks the construction company into destroying the building, um, which causes an eye beam to like become dislodged and swing back and forth mm -hmm. like a pendulum. And it's, um, really effective, really good, like tonal adaptation. I think of the idea of the pit and pen, the pit and the pendulum. Sure. Um, and a really like, yeah, like you said, like really satisfying end to an absolute creep. Yeah. Um, and also sets up like uh, the true like deep sadness of the death of um the lenore character in the eighth episode yes by just showing like her strength and her um inability to be swayed by um like kind of the allure of like money and power that comes you yeah. know with being an usher um another yeah. really effective scene in that last episode um so yeah the, the last episode uh episode eight is the raven um tying back to a midnight dreary um overall i thought a, a good ending and a really effective bookend um to the series from where you start so uh this episode kind of brings everything to a conclusion with roderick and madeline um and their fates and um pretty much the fate of everybody that survives including as frank said lenore um and pim and um all the like minor characters that are left and what ends up happening to the fortunata company um, so what did you think of this ending, Frank? I thought it was really good. Um, throughout the entire, like, the, the bookend piece with Roderick and uh, Dupin talking to each other in the Usher household, um, you constantly hear noises in the basement, like, shuffling, and um, Roderick always says that it's Madeline down there, you know, sh you'll see her later. Um, there's referenced several times throughout the show the idea that madeline and roderick both or roderick in particular um collect things related to death and um resurrection and eternal life and one of the things they have 
that Roderick bought for Madeline are these um sapphire eyes that were in a two two hep is that the name of the the pharaoh the whatever yes yeah mm -hmm. um so the end where you see that he's pulled her brains out with like the egyptian um whatever they call it uh like lobotomizing tool and replace like gouged out her eyes and replaced them with these sapphires so she can be in his words like live as a goddess mm -hmm. but didn't quite count on the fact that he didn't kill her like she was still alive and she comes like stumbling upstairs and just mm -hmm. you know this mindless almost like zombie and like ends up throttling him and killing him as the house falls down around him i thought it was a really mm -hmm. fitting end yeah um I, I love that scene the only thing that bothers me is there's no cars outside afterwards and dupan definitely had to come in a car so i don't know but right. um i like the verna stuff i like um i think that her dialogue with um the pym character is really fantastic yeah and we haven't talked about that like i mean like pym has been operating kind of like uh in the shadows like this entire series like only really only in scenes with the roderick and madeline characters um you do get pym uh arthur gordon pym's backstory at one point in discussion with dupan and R usher and i think that's really like well told and well done um on greenwood's part of like his recounting of that tale um and I think maybe to me, like there's the Lenore scene where she kind of like tries to like uh, that whole sequence is really affect affected me a lot, like where she tries to like talk to her grandfather and then ultimately is is killed. Um, but also the Arthur Grimm Pym scene is was really affected me a lot, like deeply um like brought like a tear to my eye like when i realized that like this is a guy who's never going to take the deal when verna offers him like some sort of deal um and the idea that like despite all of like the terrible things he's done in his life um he has enough honor to accept his fate as opposed to like try to get out of it like everybody else you know has done so far in the series really um whether they made a conscious deal or not um was really effective in a lot of ways and um really well played by both Hamill um and Gagino, I think. And that's yeah. Scene. Yeah, definitely. Um interesting to use the character of uh Arthur Gordon Pym. Um one of the more unique uses of a of a character, I think. Yeah, and kind of keep true, I guess, to the the novel in a lot of ways. Um I think it's funny that um there's small things where like it's an obvious reference to something they like said like the Toby Dammon or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um and then other things where he really uses like the Poe um like if you know the story to like really great effect. Mm -hmm. Um Yeah. I also yeah, really but... like that scene with Griswold too. Like the Castle of Montalotto. Oh yeah, 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 like, yeah. Yeah. Um nobody's Montresor though, unfortunately, but that's <laughs> right. Um but yeah, it's um, it's gonna be really hard for anything to ever top Bly Manor for me because number one, I think I mean I love the Haunting of Hill House, but I think that um, I think Turn of the Screw like I I think it's a really fantastic Turn of the Screw adaptation that um takes into account like previous media and the novel itself and does something really creative and awesome with it. Mm -hmm. um but i think that flanagan has this really strong knack for taking a taking a good story and changing making it his own i guess in a way that's enjoyable and believable and doesn't make you angry because of its irreverence but it makes you impressed by his ability to kind of like draw these disparate things together so and i think this does a really good job of that um, yeah. I know that there's people that have complained about um, how unfaithful it is to certain aspects of like the different stories, but what are you going to do? You know, I mean, you got to tie them all together. And I think <sighs> the way that he ties everything together is pretty amazing. Um, and, you know, there's another character that we never even talked about, really, 
um, who one of my other favorite characters in the show is the character of Juno. Mm, um, yes. Yep. Roderick Usher's um, young wife that you find out he only married because she has the inordinately strong ability to digest um, uh, ligadone. Ligadone. Mm-hmm. Um, basically because she can just take um, copious amounts of heroin and like stay standing. Right. Um, but she's she's pretty heartbreaking throughout the whole thing and yeah it's actually the one scene with tamerlan it, it really like scenes with her with almost every character are the scenes that kind of humanize them mm-hmm. with the exception of froderick who <laughs> is humanized the most by everything else throughout the show until they just like pull that away and you find out what a monster he is um yeah i don't know yeah it's really really great ad- adaptation yeah um no it definitely is and um he i i do want to mention too uh we haven't uh i it's really notable to me that frank langella like ended up like filming most of the series as the roderick usher character before he um did something inappropriate on set like you know um against the advice of um an intimacy like coordinator and um was rightfully by that point like by flanagan it seemed removed and tried to double down on like how like you know sensitive our culture is now in an op-ed um and bruce greenwood stepped in and had to refilm basically like all those scenes and greenwood like despite the performances of everybody else like greenwood is the the beating heart of this show um not to have a pun like is by connecting everything together here and um a guy who is everybody knows is a solid character actor i think but like really like just brings all of this together and it's the through line through the entire thing and steps in flawlessly I think into this role and oh, yeah. on, and honestly, like I couldn't imagine it not being him. Um, and I have a hard time actually imagining Frank Langella is, is that character um, after yeah, seeing he, this. He feels to number one. I don't know how he. Um, what's his name? The kid from Midnight Mass. I don't know how he um, Zach Guilford. Yeah. Like, I don't really think they pair up as well as um, Greenwood and him, but right. Yeah, I think. um I don't know. I I think it's a powerful performance. I think it's yeah. a vulnerable and fractured and mm-hmm. um still like imposing. You know, yeah. he's he's every bit of like William Randolph Hearst at times and <laughs> sure. Um that ego is still there no matter what's going on to some degree. Yeah. Like he feels his own greatness, I think, even in like how like uh distraught he kind of is. Like um yeah, or, or just a really like strong performance. Um last minute performance really. Uh he does uh Flanagan looking he is apparently uh directing is a, there is a movie like it's gotten put on hold from the strikes but um The Life of Chuck it's an adaptation from of a of a King story that um stars Tom Middleston or Hiddleston and uh Mark Hamill in it. So maybe that there's the Mark Hamill connection. Maybe I don't know. Like maybe he was already like started to work on that and cast him in this or vice versa. But um, it's interesting that like Hamill is now like a part of <laughs> Flanagan's um universe. It's from the same shot of short stories where Mister Harrigan's phone is from. Um, and I don't think I've ever read that book. So it's called If It Bleeds. Yeah, it was just from it was there's three years ago, so I haven't read it. Yeah, I guess I never read it. Yeah. Um <clears throat> I don't think I've read anything after Cell, maybe. <laughs> like I'm not sure. I don't think I have. I bought um shit, what was that book called? Ah fuck. It was one of his anthologies that um came out like maybe 10 years ago and i read the first story in it and i hated it and i've never gone back since yeah what is it called 
while you look that up super poorly written and i don't know while you're looking that up um i the the other praise i want to heap on flanagan quickly is like how diverse flanagan is um not only like on the screen and representation wise is also his writing staff um as we're coming out of a writer's strike i think it's really important to note that like he has like all of the episodes that feature females um as the main character in their stories he has female co-writers working with him um you know all the males he has male co-writers working with him like he is you know as we're trying to find fair representation of like going and like asking somebody who's in a certain community like about like hey am i getting things right and like you know like is is this okay um um you know one of there's a notable example from this past week that only we would know about and i don't care about explaining it where it's like you can't have one person be a monolith for a certain population in terms of okaying like whether something is offensive or not um I think it's important to like try to seek a broader representation of somebody like from the community that like could like speak to those things um, and um, have like a good background with them. And I think that Flanagan really does attempt to do that. I know it works its way into his work sometimes where maybe he's a little like too like quote unquote woke, but um, I think he's the real deal when it comes to like actually like supporting like people of color and women and stuff like that. And I think you see it in the work and I think you see it behind the scenes. And I think it should be noted that he's a pretty good dude, yeah. I think overall. That's the reason why I kind of give him a pass on like the social commentary thing, because I know he's just doing what he thinks is right. Yeah. For being like a, like a responsible filmmaker. Sure. Um, And I think it's pretty cool that he's a Marylander too. So yeah. Towson alum. So. Yep. Yep. Yeah, um, did you ever um, figure was, out the name of that book? Uh, full, full dark, no stars. Oh, I never even heard of that one. Yeah, it, um, <laughs> that Netflix uh, made for TV with the shit, the shit in the cornfield. Is that nineteen twenty two? Yeah, that's it. Nineteen twenty two. Actually, I like that movie, but um that and a good marriage are the two that i read i didn't read the other two novellas in it and i mm-hmm. hate them both so gotcha um did you watch that adaptation 1922 no i've never watched it i i mean it's a it felt like a little long but like i thought overall like it was um some really good performances with uh yeah. Tom jane and molly parker in it but um yeah it's 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 well executed um not great but good um overall um all right so um next special report on flanagan have no idea i'm hoping it's the dark tower um to finally talk about that and see him actually adapt it um i do have one last question for you about this thing how Uh, many decades do you think or how many years i guess is like do you think he had this like obviously there's a lot of modern references in this show but it's like how many years do you think he was like working on this like in his head to like try to connect all this I'd imagine together. probably since he was a kid. Yeah. Really. I wonder if it's not like King, kind of like with the Dark Tower stuff of like starting it like when he was young, like a teenager, or like early 20s, and just had been thinking about it constantly, like ever since in different ways. I mean, I bet he had the genesis for the Telltale Heart segment in the 80s at some point. Mm-hmm. Because the the crux of the beginning of that storyline is the idea of like the animal testing and whatnot. And that's very much something that was like prevalent in like the late eighties, early nineties. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't yeah. know, but I mean, it feels like it. It, it feels like it had to been gestating for a while. I think. In him. Yeah, I think he's a guy that. Um, I think he's a really thoughtful guy when it comes to marrying literature and like whatever visual media and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do get the impression that it's something that um is a big part of him and a big part of his like like approach to creating things, you know. Right. I think I, I think he gets really sucked into the printed media and that's what kind of inspires him to like move forward with like other projects cuz Yeah. You know, Doctor Sleep is adapted just a couple years after Doctor Sleep is a book. Right. Um, 
you know, but obviously turn of the screw is what, like late 1800s or Gerald's game is 90s. Yeah. Um, Hill House is the 40s. Right. Um, Poe is the late 19th century. So. Right. Yeah. Um, the yeah, Poe Min- stuff, Midnight Club is 90s. Is that correct? Like I have done. I have no idea. I'm, I never finished watching that. Christopher Pike's right. Like so that that was mostly a 90s. Oh, movie, yeah. Right? Yeah. Pike is the 90s. Yeah. Um, yeah, what was I gonna say? Really inspired me to want to read Poe again, though. Yeah, no, agree. I have to go. Um, my fa- we didn't get to talk about it in the first episode. I just want to say, my favorite, I think my favorite reference in the entire thing to anything Poe related is the fact that his father was um, that that is so despicable is named Longfellow. Um, because Longfellow used to leave terrible reviews for Poe and they had like a rivalry, like over in journals with each other of like you know poe like writing and disagreeing with longfellow's opinions on other authors just so he could like stick it to um longfellow um because he hated him so much and i i love the idea that like the the head of fortunata and his secret father is um and usher's father is named longfellow makes me laugh (laughs) because poe definitely detested that guy all right any final thoughts on this right no, I don't know. I just, I don't know if I would recommend it to everyone, but I think that if you enjoy, like, if you're okay with, like, a little bit of, like, graphic gore, sexual content, nudity, um, I don't know. I think it's worth your time. So, yeah. All right. Okay. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, we'll be back um, shortly um, with another Spin Chagrin episode. And um, you can continue listening to hodgepodge halloween with us if you want um for the next couple fridays so thanks for listening have a great week deuces